You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Ironside, MD, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Ketzel, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about John Benbow, a man who was soon to be, in our overall narrative, the most famous naval officer in England. We left off when he was fired from his post in the Royal Navy, though, due to slander of superior officers. As a private citizen, living in Tangier, Benbow bought himself a ship, one of those captured Barbary Corsair vessels, and with it he started up a merchant shipping business. He traded primarily in the kinds of luxury goods that were enjoyed by Europeans living on the coast of Barbary. He brought in food and clothes and books, including books like the Buccaneers of America. But more than anything else, the one thing that all Europeans craved which they could not find in the Muslim world, was alcohol. The Age of Sail, and the Golden Age of Piracy in particular, are almost inseparable from alcohol. Rum in particular is an integral part of the pirate myth. There's even that song, the most famous song in all of pirate mythology, That's what popped up when I googled, why is the rum gone? But obviously here we're talking about Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island classic, Dead Man's Chest. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. And all you have to do is go shopping for a bottle of rum sometime, and you'll see maybe a third of the bottles on offer have some kind of pirate branding. Those that don't more than likely have either a nautical or a Caribbean theme. The reasons for that are interesting, and we will get there, but today I want to take a deeper dive into the history of alcohol and the role that it played in society at large. A role that would influence maritime history, early modern naval traditions, and the pirates who lived within them. This is episode 211, A History of Alcohol. 
The history of alcohol is the history of civilization itself. It goes hand in hand with all of the other cornerstones of civilization like writing and agriculture, pottery and prostitution. And when I say integral to civilization, I mean the dawn of civilization. You just have to look at something like the Epic of Gilgamesh from ancient Mesopotamia. The epic has two main characters. There's Gilgamesh himself, a cultured, refined, civilized warrior king. And then there's his sidekick, Enkidu. Enkidu is the prototypical wild man. He's uncivilized and unrefined. So much so that in some versions of the epic, he's barely considered a human being. Perhaps even isn't a human being. In some depictions, he's part wolf, and in others, kind of a minotaur. Regardless, Enkidu is bestial. In the book Alcohol, A History, author Rod Phillips makes this connection. Phillips tells us that, according to the Epic of Gilgamesh, the act of drinking beer itself can make one a human being. As an example, he gives us a passage from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It reads, quote, Enkidu does not know of eating food. Of beer to drink he has not been taught. The prostitute opened her mouth. She said to Enkidu, Eat the food, Enkidu. It is the luster of life. Drink the beer, as is done in this land. Enkidu ate the food until he was sated. Of the beer he drank seven cups. His soul became free and cheerful. His heart rejoiced. His face glowed. He rubbed his hairy body. He anointed himself with oil. He became human. End quote. Now, I don't fully understand how even a werewolf minotaur type would not know of eating food, but... We're not talking about food today, so let's brush that aside and talk about the beer. This passage from one of the oldest epics in human history makes it clear that beer was a big deal in Mesopotamia, and it was. But the process of imbibing alcohol goes back even farther than that. Farther than Mesopotamia, farther than civilization, even farther than humanity itself. I mean, we've all seen videos of animals gorging themselves on fallen, fermented fruit and getting, well, plastered. If you haven't, go look them up. They're fantastic. But beyond a bunch of wild animals and early humans that enjoyed fermented fruit, it's really hard to pin down when humans started producing alcohol on purpose. For a long time, thanks to sources like that of Gilgamesh, it was assumed to be the Mesopotamians that came up with producing alcohol, somewhere around 5,000 years ago. But as archaeological techniques advanced in the 19th century, they started finding evidence from China as far back as 7,000 years ago. More recently, in the 20th century, we've found evidence from the central Eurasian mountains in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran, that show production from as far back as 9,000 years ago. What makes this also difficult, though, is the kind of archaeological data that we have to work with. We're talking about fragments of pottery with trace amounts of acids that might suggest the presence of alcohol. Nothing, even with some of the best scientific practices they can muster, that are absolutely definitive. Now, 
communities today who favor particular alcoholic drinks will argue extensively about which drink actually came first. For example, I personally am a mead nerd. I like to drink mead, I like to make mead, and talk about mead, and read about mead, and spend time on mead enthusiast forums online. Trust me, you don't want to go on a date with me to the local meadery. I will, unprompted, talk about mouthfeel. And I will mean it. It's a problem. And I would love to tell you, given all of that, that it was in fact mead that came first. One of the books I have on the topic, The Complete Mead Maker by Ken Schramm, it gives excellent examples of why mead might have come first. Arguments that, for example, rainwater could have collected in beehives prior to the existence of pottery or tightly woven baskets, and therefore the honey in the beehive would have created mead naturally. But of course, on the other hand, cider aficionados and those who favor grape and berry wines have their own arguments, and they're all good. The only thing that we can all agree on is that anyone who argues that beer came first is a fool. An utter buffoon, a, an ignoramus of the highest order. But in the end, looking at this topic objectively, we really have to rely on archaeological evidence here. And for a long time that pointed to fruit wine. See, Fruit wine can only be produced once a year, at harvest. Once it's made, it needs to be stored in airtight containers or it will turn to vinegar. Thanks to that fact, there's a pretty strong argument that the production of wine drove the production of pottery in human civilization. We will talk about that next time, though, but that means that there's a fairly large amount of archaeological evidence pointing to wine as the first. Mostly those... Shards of pottery with trace acids and proteins that suggest fruit wine. The problem there is that beer could be produced year-round from stores of dried grain, and people tended to drink beer quickly, within a few days or maybe weeks of production. Beer was unlikely to go bad, it wasn't going to turn to vinegar, so you didn't need airtight ceramic containers. In fact, one could use open, watertight woven containers. But then most recently, some new evidence has been revealed in the very early production of alcoholic beverages. Evidence that suggests, even proves, that it was beer that came first, and that the oldest confirmed brewing equipment in the world comes from Mesopotamia. They were making beer in modern-day Israel as far back as 13,000 years ago. And the evidence for that is a relatively recent find. But it is based on evidence, rather than the former historical assumptions that beer was first created in Mesopotamia. They were right, but they were right for the wrong reasons. Now, we could talk about early alcohol production and distribution all around the world for... Well, you could do a whole podcast about it. And they have. There's actually a pretty fun podcast called Shots of History about the story of alcohol. It's worth checking out. For our purposes today, though, we're not going to go into any real depth on the distinct styles and traditions in places like China or Central Asia or Africa or Mesoamerica. They're all fun stories and worth a look if you're interested, but... 
they're not really super relevant to the golden age of piracy. With that in mind, we're going to stick pretty close to the classical world. That is to say, ancient Greece and Rome, Persia, really all of the lands that Alexander the Great conquered, what they call today the Middle East, and all of the cultures that would eventually sprout from those civilizations. Mostly there we're talking about Europe and the Muslim world. And then, eventually, once Europeans begin their contact and conquest of the Americas, we will touch on Native American alcohol traditions, which do have some impact. Now, we could, and I almost did, do entire episodes on the Mesopotamian period, and especially ancient Egypt. Both regions and eras were defined mostly by beer. I think it's pretty common knowledge today that the ancient Egyptian pharaohs prescribed a steady diet of beer to their people. Most famously, they fed beer to the slaves who built their pyramids and other large architectural wonders. That was a low-alcohol, high-carbohydrate beer, though. You know, liquid bread, it's been called, with just enough of a kick to keep the slaves sleepy and docile come nighttime. But that grain slurry was not for the pharaohs. For themselves, they drank wine, as did the kings in Sumeria and Persia and Babylon. It was a kingly drink. Wine was harder to make and especially harder to store, but beyond that, wine held a kind of religious symbolism in all of those cultures. It was a mystical drink, in some cases seen as a magical drink. And then, of course, there are the obvious allusions to blood. Wine was often spilled in conjunction with blood in sacrifices, both animal and human. I guess they poured a bit out for their homies. Oh god, I'm sorry about that one. But it's the kind of power that wine holds in stories like that of Dracula and that of Jesus Christ. But then there came a people who were less enamored with the magical properties of wine. They were a people who democratized their wine, just as they democratized so many other facets of their life. We're talking about the ancient Greeks and, later on, the Romans. Now, the normalization of vino in Greco-Roman society has a lot to do with the ease of growing grapes in southern Europe. It was a lot easier and a lot cheaper to produce wine in Italy than it was to import it to Babylon. But I really can't ignore the symbolism here. You know, the Greeks invented democracy, and the Romans, well, they killed their kings and instituted the Roman Republic. And in both Greece and Rome, they demystified the mystical powers that wine held in the minds of the East. First, though, I will say, in Greece, it was actually mead that came first. That's often pointed to as the real identity of the mythical ambrosia, a drink of the gods in ancient Greece and in India, as it happens. And, boy, I could, I could really dwell on that. If we had the time, I would go into great detail all the way back to the Proto-Indo-European peoples of the Central Eurasian steppe. And, more specifically, their language. However, for now, all I will do is note that the origins for words like honey and wine, and most especially 
for bees can be found in that Proto-Indo-European language. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. It's no surprise that we find evidence of ancient mead production, you know, honey wine, in the three largest groups of Indo-European migratory groups. Those who traveled to Persia and India, those who traveled to Northern Europe, and finally, those who traveled to Southern Europe, namely Greece and Rome. I would, given the opportunity, talk about that at length, but... As much as I would love to tell you otherwise, pirates were not known for their mead drinking. Still, though, by the classical, Hellenic, and Hellenistic ages, grape wine was very much king in Greece and Rome. At the height of the Roman Republic and into the imperial period, wine was an ever-present facet of daily life. Now, good wine, the good stuff, was reserved for the aristocratic leaders of the Roman Empire, but everyone in the empire, everyone but the very destitute, had access to wine. It was a staple of every table. It was available at every restaurant. It was used in nearly every recipe, and it was enjoyed both watered down and at full strength, depending on the occasion. And that brings us to the final topic we are going to talk about today, the questions of intemperance, of sin, and sex. I think that in the medieval era and into the modern world, there is a certain masculinity associated with the production of alcohol. We tend to picture German monks making beer, or, more prominent these days, heavily bearded hipster lumberjacks making craft beer. And... Whiskey, I mean, it's always big Scottish dudes or big dudes from Kentucky hauling those barrels around, but in the ancient world, things were different. As far back as recorded history goes, the production of alcohol was almost always associated with femininity, which, honestly, I prefer. I can really picture a woman in ancient Greece wearing one of those loose-fitting Grecian dresses, stomping my grapes, and wait, no, no, not like that, but, you know, you can see the image there, right? A group of women with those cool, kind of circular braids that were so popular in the ancient world, stomping grapes and tending the bees and wildflower apiaries and 
producing the wines that were enjoyed by everyone. And for the aristocrats that actually owned the finest vineyards in Italy, I'm sure they did have something like that. Beautiful, virginal slave girls doing just that and then serving them the very finest wine in the world at their very well-furnished dinner tables. But for the rest of us, for the rest of the world, down here in the muck, reality was a lot dirtier. And I assure you there was nothing virginal about the women making the wine. From India to Athens to Rome, even all the way up through Gaul and into Britannia, wine and beer was made almost exclusively by prostitutes. And I've been trying to find the polite way to put this. I'm having a hard time doing so. So I'm just going to be blunt about it. The world's oldest profession is a job with an age limit. It's not something that one can do forever. And you know, for a very few, for the very beautiful or very lucky or very intelligent, some of them might have been able to turn their profession into a really lucrative gig. You know, a rich nobleman might snap them up and add them to his harem or to his household. And there were a number of women all throughout history that were able to transition into trading more in intrigue and secrets than in trading flesh, and to do so much more profitably. And then, of course, there were those that served as madams of their own establishments, but for the vast majority of prostitutes in the ancient world, and we should remember, they were almost all slaves here, and frequently didn't speak the local language, but for nearly all of the women in that position, they were not so fortunate. They worked in brothels. Their job was prostitution. And it's not cool, it's not nice to say, but their customers usually chose to spend their money on the young and pretty girls. Or, if we're being honest, in the ancient world, just as often young and pretty boys. And that all might sound pretty terrible. I'm sure it wasn't a constantly joyous occasion for anybody in that position. But it very probably wasn't as terrible as we might think. Much more often than we find in the modern world, the brothels were owned and operated by women, sometimes in a kind of communal fashion. And you know, these were women who usually didn't marry. To survive, they had to look out for one another. That's what the prohibition of prostitution gets you. You get drugs and abuse and human trafficking and pimps. Instead, you could have houses of ill repute that, in reality, weren't all that bad. You know, they had rules and they had guards and they could choose not to accept customers who broke the rules. And that communal life, that life where everyone looked out for one another, means that they would occasionally, even often, build very real and strong friendships and relationships. This is, sure, it's interesting, but I'm making a special point of it today because we see a very similar kind of culture emerge in the Caribbean round about 1700, especially in the ports of ill repute. But I remember a book I was reading a long time ago that had a main character that was a prostitute. She was getting a bit older, though, not elderly, but no longer as young and pretty as she once had been and she was worried that she wouldn't be able to support herself for much longer. It was a terrible situation to be in. 
But for most of recorded history, that's not how things usually actually worked. In those brothels, especially in places like Rome, brothels that were often owned by women, you didn't just get kicked out and left to starve to death because you no longer had the charms that you once did. They had a culture of mutual support. But beyond that, there were a ton of other jobs in the brothels that needed doing. First, and this is worth note, there was the performative aspect of the brothels that you find so often in the ancient world. We're talking about music and song and poetry and theater. In ancient Rome, legally speaking, actors and prostitutes shared a class with one another. And then there were also jobs like, you know, the cooks and the servers. You could, in a brothel in the ancient world, expect a bit of dinner theater. But the most important aspect of the brothel, probably financially speaking, even more important than the sex, was the drink. As a patron, sure, you would enjoy a few goblets of wine, but it was so much more than that. Instead of hipster lumberjacks, it was usually women who worked for the brothels that made the wine. Not just for the brothel, but for wine enjoyed by nearly everybody in the empire. In a very real way, aside from dealing in flesh, these brothels were wine merchants. There are more than a few accounts of wine merchants in places like ancient Rome who went to the brothels to negotiate the buying of large quantities of wine produced at or nearby the brothel, wine that those merchants would go on to transport and sell on all corners of the empire. Now, I hesitate to use words like nefarious here. I'm actually pretty fond of the tactics used, but the brothel certainly had its advantages in that situation. I mean, imagine you've got a fat, soft wine merchant, and he walks into a house that is filled with a host of pretty young women who were very skilled at pleasing men. And I'm sure that those women were wearing their very finest dresses when they brought out the wine for sampling. And I'm certain that the madam or whoever was negotiating with the wine merchant would have implied that he would have been free to sample everything that the house had to offer, provided he cut a good deal with the brothel. And I'm looking at this from the perspective of a straight man, but oftentimes, while their husbands were away transporting wine to all corners of the empire, it was the wives that actually did the negotiation. Or maybe in an attempt to combat the nefarious tactics used by the brothel, maybe they would employ a gay man to negotiate their wine purchase, but not to worry. These brothels had plenty of wine, anything to please any palate. It was big business, and make no mistake, the women behind that business guarded it jealously, violently, more often than not. As we said, those brothels employed guards to make sure none of the customers grew too unruly, but if necessary, those same guards could be employed to break a few kneecaps. This was Italy, after all. The merchants, though, those who traded in far-flung corners of the empire and even beyond, well, they often experienced a far less enjoyable time at the other end of their journey. You know, in Rome or wherever they were buying the wine, they might cut a good deal and enjoy a few extracurriculars. But once they arrived in Gaul or even in Germania, 
it was often still the women there that negotiated the buying of the wine. But in early Roman Gaul, and for the entirety of the empire in Germania, instead of a night of pleasurable company, those German women were offering something far better. They were offering you a chance to keep your life. One does not mess with Germanic barbarian women. According to sources like Tacitus, they were even more free with the blade than their male counterparts. But back in Rome and in Babylon and everywhere else in the ancient world, these brothels, who protected their business jealously, well, they elicited a certain amount of resentment, as I'm sure you can imagine. For the profits they enjoyed, absolutely, but it's more than that. You know, these were independent women, making their own money free of any familial connections. They were using their feminine wiles to live lives of communal peace, and in some cases even a certain amount of luxury. And they were doing so free from the tyranny of some of the most patriarchal societies that history had ever seen. To the men in power in those ancient civilizations, it was just... Well, it was the worst. And you know, sure, those same men might patronize those establishments of an evening, but come morning they were in the forum denouncing them. They were dens of vice and debauchery and evil. In some cases, they would pass laws against drunkenness from these establishments. They would pass taxes to ensure that they could not make too much money. But still, they prospered. Later on, we would see these houses of ill repute as dens of nothing so much as sin. There is a reason that today we associate breweries more with German monks with those you know, little bald patches shaved into their heads, than with beautiful, alluring women with those cool circular braids. But that's the production of alcohol. You know, we still associate the enjoyment of alcohol with women. Just watch a football game and you'll see ads with women in bikinis who just happen to be carrying their beer down by their butts when you get a nice close-up shot. Label out, naturally. But that's the drunken, intemperate, and sexualized side of alcohol. You know, those sins might not be as anathema as they used to be in modern society, but they're still pushing the sin. It's no accident that, as the Roman Empire saw the rise of the Christian Church and their much more strict moral codes, that the image of those who produced the alcohol shifted, that the reality of those who were allowed to produce the alcohol shifted. The ancient traditions, the Thousands of year old human traditions of making and enjoying alcohol were going to change significantly. That story, though, is going to have to wait until next time. Today, I really did want to cover the entire story of alcohol from Babylon to Nassau, but it proved impossible. And I was rushing here. I didn't even talk about the Bell Beaker people or the Corded Ware people. But we will next time. We're going to talk about the alcoholic traditions in Europe and how that impacted and even forged the Age of Sail and the Age of Pirates. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody that has helped to support the show. 
Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, you can visit us at piratehistorypodcast.com, about which, keep your eyes and ears open. We have news in the works. But as always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight